you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to be reading verses 17 through 24. This is God's Word. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which the Lord has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the, at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, thank you for your word and thank you that you speak. And thank you that uh, you're here with us and that your deepest desire is to conform us to the image of Jesus. Jesus was a contented man, and your spirit would make us a contented people. And so do this, Lord, supernaturally, and use your word and your servant to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to remind you where we've been in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, um, the way that we approached it was we looked at uh, the, the sex as being something gloriously good in the context of marriage. And we got that from verses 1 through 5. But then we looked at singleness also being gloriously good. And we got that from verses 6 through 9 and then 25 through 38. And then last week we looked at marriage which was verses 10 through 16 and 39 through 40, and we looked at it from the lens of until death do us part. And so if you want to think about a sandwich, we've dealt with the buns, the the outsides of this chapter, and this morning we're dealing with the meat, and and it's right there in the center. And uh, I think it undergirds everything. The principle is the passage that we're in this morning, but it touches on everything around it in the chapter. And this passage is about the beautiful gift of Christian contentment. And this could not be a more timely message. We live in a discontent, anxious, striving, status-chasing society that maybe you get something comes across your social media feed, 10 keys to retiring by the age of 50. And then you look at your finances, you're like, man, I'm doing something wrong, right? Or five steps to start your business or go to this website to find the man or woman of your dreams, right? Like like the world around us is always alluring us for more, more money, more pleasure, more profits, more this, more that. And we live in a status chasing, anxious, discontent society. 
And this problem isn't unique to us. It's universal. That this passage was written to a church and the people who struggled with contentment. And we see this, right? They were not content to be followers of Jesus. They just had to align themselves with, I follow Paul, Paul, and I follow Peter, and I follow Apollos, right? You aren't content to be Christ's followers. You got to be extra. You got you to show that you're in the in crowd. And later on in chapter 12, they're not content with having various gifts. You have the gifts of tongues, and I have the gifts of interpretation, and you work miracles, and you have wisdom, and you have prophecy, and you have knowledge, right? They're not content with multifaceted gifts. They have to exalt themselves and say, well, my gift is better than yours, and your gift is not as good as mine. They are not content. They have to be above everybody else. And I think that this contentment actually shapes what we've talked about for the past three weeks. They aren't content with their spouses, and so they want a divorce. They're not content with their singleness, so they think another person's going to complete them. You get it? This whole passage is about the lack of contentment. And what Paul is actually saying, Jesus is enough. You live in a new age. You've been delivered from competition and rivalry and envy and keeping your head on the swivel, seeking the next best thing, you can be content where you are and live your normal providence-shaped life. You can faithfully serve Jesus as you are and where you are, period. Now, to get at this, I want to think about this first through this point of crushing circumstances that can fuel our discontentment. So it's about contentment, but Paul dives into discontentment. So what are some crushing circumstances that can fuel discontentment? Look, ladies and gentlemen and children, we don't have to try very hard to be discontent. It takes no effort at all. You see, one of the Ten Commandments, the last one actually is do not covet. And coveting is the sin that got the Apostle Paul, right? And it is this this over-desire for something that your neighbor has. It can be his money, her money, his spouse, her spouse, his business, her business, his looks, her looks. It can be anything that that is your neighbor's, and and, and it's twofold. It's first coveting and and over-desiring, and then it is not being content with your own lot and your own life and your own spouse and your own servants and your own gifts. And so discontentment and coveting, I think, are really two sides of the same coin. And so it's in the Ten Commandments. So here's what it means for me. You can be a born again believer, delivered from that, and that can be crucified. But I think discontentment, at least for me, it works like this low grade smoldering fire that's just kind of there. And then certain things throw gasoline on it and make what's there just kind of surface. Right. I think that's what Paul is dealing with in this section that certain things are throwing gasoline on their discontentment. Now, look at what Paul says right there in verse 17. 
He says, this is my rule in all the churches. I think you got to underline that because here's why. What Paul is about to say, he's actually saying, hey, Corinthians, this isn't unique to you. This is my rule in all the churches, which means that the Thessalonians need to hear this. The Colossians need to hear this. The Ephesians need to hear this. It means that saints at Redeemer need to hear this. Saints at Mount Helm need to hear this. Saints at Ferris Street need to hear this. Saints at New Horizon need to hear this. Saints at First Press need to hear this. Saints at First Baptist. This is a universal in all the churches. This is the thing that I keep having to address. Well, what is the universal rule? He says it in verse 17, that each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to that person, that God has called that person. Verse 20 and 24, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So brother, in whatever condition you were called, let remain there with God. The universal rule is remain as God has you looking at your lot and your life, not your neighbors. But the universal problem beneath the universal rule is discontentment. And for all the ways that were different, male and female, black and white, old and young and married and single, the universal rule that Paul has to lay down in every single church, oh, beloved children, be content. Now, what circumstances does Paul apply this to or what circumstances are fueling their discontentment? We already said it last week that that it's troubled in marriage, like, like troubles in marriage can make someone discontent with their lot. So that's what it's about, right? But he applies it in, in, in three different ways this morning. Now remember, the church of Corinth was diverse, that there were Jews and Greeks. The church was planted next door to a Jewish synagogue. There were slaves and slave owners. There were men and women and children and divorcees and widows and engaged couples all in the same church. Now, notice what Paul addresses first. He, look at verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Now, who of that swath of people would be circumcised? It was the Jews. Somebody just said it. The Jews. So for a second, Paul isn't talking to the Gentiles. He's talking to the Jews, particularly the Jewish men in that multi-everything church who would have been circumcised. So he has something to say. Now, what does he say to those who had been already circumcised? Don't seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Why would a Jew Seek to remove the mark of circumcision. It's because of how the Greco-Romans viewed circumcision. That was unique to Jews. But if you were in a Greco-Roman Hellenized city like Corinth, you did not have the same attitude towards circumcision. As a matter of fact, the Roman emperor Hadrian, he loathed circumcision and castration and said they both are unnatural, that they are an offense against the Greek idea of natural beauty of the human body. And he outlawed both. After the Jewish revolt, 
punitive measures against Jews were more easily enforced against those who could be identified because they were circumcised. And so what Jews would do when persecution came is is change their accent or hide their Jewishness. But in a Hellenized world, what they would do is drop your pants and see that, hey, this is the one thing that makes you and I not alike. This is the identifiable mark for being a Jewish man. Now, think about what it was like life back then. We go to our kitchen and we turn on like the hot water and we run our hot water in our tubs or in our showers. But in Paul's day, only the wealthy had aqueducts who had running water coming to their home. Most people took baths in public gyms or public bath houses. Think about that. And so if you were a Jewish man who did not have a place to bathe, you would go no more than 30 meters, maybe 50 meters, and you could take a public bath. That's how you took your bath. And you were exposed. And it was same gender. So men would bathe with men and women would bathe with women. And, and the, 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 that gymnasium or, or, or that bathhouse, it was like golf is today. You know what they say? Go smoke a cigar. Go handle business on the golf course. Business deals are sealed on the golf course. Well, here's what one scholar, his name is Robert Hall. He wrote an article called Epispasm circumcision in reverse for the center of Judaic studies. Here's what he writes. This combination of attitudes was often devastating for circumcised Jews. Enjoying oneself in a Greek gymnasium or a Roman bath where nudity was the norm. Here, politics were discussed and business deals concluded. Athletic contests and same-gendered exhibitions were also conducted in the nude. Participation in athletics was often a prerequisite for social advancement, yet a circumcised penis effectively precluded this participation. A Jewish man could escape such oppressive measures and the stigma attached to them by submitting to epispasm. It was a surgical process of removing the marks of their circumcision. You kind of understand what's happening. I just see some of y'all wincing like, what? Yes, it was painful. But now you understand the discontentment. How do they see me and treat me? Will they patronize my business? Right? Like, that's the pressure. And then Paul turns to the Gentile men in the congregation. Notice what he says was, was any of you at his time, at his call, uncircumcised? And so now he's not talking to the Jews because no Jewish man would be uncircumcised. Now he's talking to the Gentiles in the congregation. And he's saying to these Gentiles, Were you uncircumcised when you met Jesus? And I know there's pressure for discontentment. Why? Because in the same way that the Jews are the minority out in Corinth, inside the church, guess who is the minority? The biblical minority. It's going to be the Gentiles. Why? Because you're going to preach from Deuteronomy. And you're going to preach from Genesis, and you're going to preach from the Old Testament. And so you got these Jewish men who are worshiping Jesus, who are in the same church, and they walk around with this air of, of pride. You aren't like us. We are of the circumcision. 
To us came the prophets. To us came the promises. To us came the covenants. And this is what the book of Galatians is about. The book of Galatians is about Judaizers, Jewish men who were telling Gentiles, you are half-breed followers of Jesus. You must submit yourself to circumcision. And so now you walk into the church and now the pressure is on. They look at me like, I'm not valuable, right? And then he turns to another group in the church. He turns to the slaves. This is not Paul's complete biblical theology on slavery. uh, N.T. Wright says that slavery in Paul's day was equivalent to electricity in our day. It's everywhere and it touches all things. The Roman Empire was dependent upon slave labor. Corinth, because it was a wealthy port city, was a strategic location as a colony, and it is where significant buying and selling of slaves happened. Now, there are some things that are the same with American race-based chattel slavery, and there are some things that are different. Back then, slavery was not rooted in one's race. Anyone could become a slave. There were four ways to become slaves in the Roman Empire, says Thistleton. Children born of a woman in slavery, they made up one-third of the slave population. Some sold themselves into slavery to pay off a debt. Others uh, were stolen. They they were stolen by man-stealers This is what Paul writes about in Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.10, and other slaves were prisoners of war from enemy populations. And there was a broad spectrum of the way slaves were treated and the freedoms they were given. Some could own a business and had trades that they could earn profits. Others served as assistants in government And then some were treated awfully, awful. Some slave women were sex toys for the master or the master's sons. No slave could vote. No slave could truly own anything. No slave could run for office. If you were a slave, your children could be sold from under you. And they could gain their freedom through manumission. Owners could free them on their own. And some could work out an agreement with the owner to buy their freedom. But they still needed the owner's permission. But imagine this. Sitting next to people. And your master gets to tell you when you leave. And your master gets to tell you when you can go home. Imagine walking everywhere and being looked at as half of a person. You know what you would start to do? You would feel discontent. Why am I a slave and he has freedom? Why can I keep my family together like him or her? Why, why do I have to live on the edges of poverty? You see what's happening? Paul is addressing it all. He's actually saying there are some things that that fuel our discontentment. And it will make us all look for greener pastures. 
When do you feel discontent? Do you wish that, man, I wish I had more followers on social media. I wish I could get into the 30 club like all the other kids. I, I wish a man would ask me out on a date. I wish I had enough money to live there or send my kids to that school like them. Or I wish that I looked this way. Or I wish that I had that job. Or I wish that I had their charisma and their mind and their personality. Or I wish that this thing was not a part of my life. What are the what ifs and the but ifs and the or ifs of your life? Because when you identify them, that's where you will find fuel for your discontentment. Don't we feel what they feel? Yes. The next thing is a, a surprising option for God's people. That's the second point. A surprising option. When discontentment surfaces, we have a few options. One option is to labor with singular focus to rid ourselves of the circumstances we hate. We hate being lonely. And so we go to a bar or a club and drink just to be held by someone. We hate being broke. And so we steal or we lie on our income taxes. We hate the popularity that one person has, so we gossip and slander their name. What we're doing in those circumstances, sinfully, illegally, or unlovingly, is trying to change the circumstances around us. But there is a surprising option on the table for God's people. Our circumstances don't have to change. We can change. We can actually remain in the hard place. And the world does not know what to do with that. You can be, as a believer, unpopular and unknown, and you can live check to check, but because of the gospel, you know you will inherit everything. You may not be known by them or liked by them or understood by them, but because of the gospel, you're known by the one who truly matters, and that's God. You may not get anyone to ask you out on a date, and that hurts. But you have a husband who has laid down his life for you, and you may be told where to go, and how to go, and how to do your job. But you don't ultimately work for a man. You work for your father in heaven. You see what the gospel does? It frees us from being the bond servants of people. That's what Paul is saying. You were already bought with the price. Don't become bond servants to people. You don't have to care about what they think or labor or live for their approval when you have the approval of God Almighty in Jesus. And that's what chapter 7 is about, family. It's about this idea of being able to remain. And my situations may not change, but my heart can change. And my heart can be softened. 
And I can stay in what is uncomfortable and painful for long stretches of time because my worth is not tied to what's around me. Now, look at remain. I actually think that remain is the emphasis of this passage. If you have your Bibles, open them with me. Look at chapter 7, verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, and I know it's painful, you just buried your husband. I say that it is good for them to what? Remain. Underline it. What does Paul say to the married women on the brink of separation in verse 10? Look at what he says in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled. Verse 26, I think in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Verse 40, a widow may remarry, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains. Look, y'all, there are exceptions. Marriages get hard and you should get a divorce. But what Paul is emphasizing in this section is you don't have to do it hastily or in a hurried, frenzied fashion. There's a time to separate, a time to come together again, a time to be single, a time to marry. And did you catch what Paul says in this passage? He uses the same word twice, remain. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. And so Paul tells the Jew who is circumcised, who may have had a preliminary meeting with the surgeon to do the reversal surgery. He says, you don't have to do it. I know you feel the pressure, the persecution, the uncertainty of what people think. You don't have to change the marks on your penis. Your heart can be changed. You can stay the same. And what does Paul tell the Gentiles feeling like second class religious citizens left out and inferior? They may have set up an appointment with a Jewish leader to be circumcised who would then spread the word among other Jewish leaders that Tyrone is one of us right now, right? He says, Tyrone, you don't have to do it. You don't have to submit to their yoke of slavery. You can remain just as you are. And then he turns to the slaves and he gives them not one word, but two words. And it's important for us to see them both. He does give them the same counsel he's given to the Jews and the Greeks. Right. But then he says, look, were any of you a bond servant when called? He says, don't be too concerned about it. Literally, do not be consumed by it or overly anxious. Do you not know that many who are last will be first? Do you not know that those who were bond servants when they were called are freed men? Someone else went to the slave buying deck and someone else says, I want them and I'll give my life for them and they are mine. And so he says, look, you can remain as you are. But then he breaks the standard. He actually says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. 
You hear what Paul is saying? And in his day, you as a slave couldn't just free yourself. Your owner had to manumit you. They had to agree to it legally and you could come up with terms, but it was still in the hands of the owner. And here's what Paul is saying. Hey, if you got an owner who won't free you, it's cool. But if you got one who will, grab it by both horns. That is beautiful, right? Because some people think that the gospel is unconcerned with injustice. It's unconcerned with the dehumanization of people. It's unconcerned with how we treat people. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. The gospel is concerned about human dignity. It does address mistreatment. And so Paul says, hey, I don't know what kind of master you got. You got a greater master in heaven and he going to be with you in this. And if by chance you get one who wants to make you free, you do it. I love what uh, Craig Blomberg says about this. It's in our reflection quote, and I want y'all to think about it on your own time. But here's what he writes. Paul's thoughts here stand in sharp contrast to the autonomous thinking of the Western world. These verses challenge our contemporary individualism, which teaches people never to rest content with the status that they have already obtained, but to always seek more, more money, more power, more influence, more control. But this same passage also addresses the opposite danger, and that is Christian passivity. Verse 21 encourages us to try to improve our lot in the world so long as we do not do it at others' expense or imagine that the key to happiness and a rewarding Christian life demands that we change our status. It is appropriate for Christians to seek to liberate others from oppressive social institutions in the name of Jesus so long as we do not transform the gospel into one that is exclusively this worldly in focus. I love that quote. It's a both and. You can be content in this situation and freedom is good. Do you see? We think the only option on the table is to grab our circumstances by the horns and to change them. And what Paul is offering for us It's a beautiful option. Change me. Change my heart. I don't have to be shaken by what's happening around me because I've come to know Christ. When the shaking started at 5.46 a.m., Mr. Atakura was sitting at his desk in Kobe. His office swayed but the books stayed on their shelves and nothing fell off of his desk. I thought to myself, this earthquake is not a big deal, Mr. Itakura said, but in fact, it was catastrophic. The great Hanshin earthquake of 1995 killed more than 6,000 people in that city. Mr. Itakura had been cushioned from the violence of the earthquake because his three-story office building was sitting on an experimental foundation made from rubber, lead, and steel. 
It was an early version of an engineering technique called base isolation. And rather than the building being built directly on the ground, so that when the ground shook, the building shook, the building was built on rubber, steel, lead isolators that absorbed the shock and they moved. Everything around the building swayed because they were built on the ground. But his building is attached to something else. And that preaches because everything that the world does is built around the circumstances. And so when circumstances are not good, the world is not good. But for the Christian, you're built on something else. And the earth will shake and the earth will heave. But you're built on Jesus and you can be steady and tall. That is the option for God's people. And that is yours if you know Jesus. Here's the last point. How do we get it? The beautiful gift of Christian contentment steadies us. The beautiful gift of Christian contentment steadies us. How do we get it? What is it? How do we know when it's come? Well, what is it? One author says Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal. It is a work of the spirit indoors. If the attainment of true contentment was as easy as merely keeping quiet outwardly, we would not need much learning. It is opposed to all. It is not opposed to all lawful seeking for help in different circumstances, nor endeavoring simply to be delivered out of the present affliction by use of lawful means, it does entail a holy resignation of spirit. Listen to this, to be delivered when God wills, as God wills, and how God wills, so that our wills are melted into the will of God. You catch that? It is a sweet, inward, quiet, and, and, and when I say quiet, I don't mean it's silent. I mean, we can be wrestling with God in our contentment, right? So silent does not mean that we're not wrestling. But it's a gracious frame of spirit which at last submits to the Lord. How do we get it? We get it as gift from Jesus. The reason I had uh, Wilson read from Philippians 4 it's because I think it's one of the most misunderstood and misapplied passages out there. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Philippians 4.13. And here is how we typically understand that passage. We see our favorite athletes put Philippians 4.13 on their shoes. We see our favorite athletes put Philippians 4.13 right here under their eyes, right, when they're playing football. We see our favorite superstars put Philippians 13, they tat it up on their arm, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And here is how we tend to think that verse works. We think what God is saying there out of context is God's going to help me get wealth. He's going to help me hit this home run. He's going to strengthen me to make the game winning shot, right? But when you read the context, that was written from prison. And not only was Paul in prison when he wrote it, 
He was being afflicted even more in prison because some were preaching Christ out of rivalry to make him get more persecution. And so in the context, Paul actually talks about, I know what it's like to not have my next meal. And I know what it's like to feast. I know what it's like to lose everything. And I know what it's like to have everything. I have learned the secret of facing excess or nothing. I can do all things who strike through Christ who strengthens me. What is Christ, Christ strengthening him for? He's giving him steadiness and contentment where his satisfaction isn't tied to how much money is in his bank account. His satisfaction isn't tied to if they like me or not. It's not tied to how well I'm doing on the job or how poorly they think I'm doing on the job. It's not tied to all the other things that the world would measure us by. What contentment is here is a gift of Jesus where we are steadied. That's what Christ strengthens us for. And he is the most contented person to ever walk the earth. Ever. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Has not the Lord said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? What is man that you can do to me? Who can truly say that? Christ, who had nowhere to lay his head, who was sent by God, though he was the king of the universe, to be a servant who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That was his lot. And you know what Jesus says? I've come to do your will, not my will, but your will. I'm content with you. And so it makes absolute perfect sense that he is the most contented human being to ever walk the earth. And he died for you and he's been raised for you. And now he sits at the right hand of the father to lavish you with contentment. It's a gift from Jesus. Now, what does it look like when you have it? It's going to reorient our lives around three things. First, it's going to reorient our lives around our calling. And I'm using this with a capital C. Notice in the text, it says that only lead the life that the Lord assigned to him to which God has called him. Was anyone at the time of his call circumcised? Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called, right? So what is Paul doing? They feel the pressure of their Jewish identity and their Gentile identity and their servant identity. But what Paul wants to do is think about your new identity in Jesus. He called you. He loves you. He softens your eyes. He softens your heart, opens your eyes. He drew you to himself through the preached word. And when you bowed the knee to Jesus, you became new. And your eternity is impacted forever. You are known. You are loved. You are accepted. You are his. That is your chief identity. He says, remember that, marvel in that. When they don't like you, you're loved by the one above, right? But there's a second type of call that Paul orients their hearts around. 
It's in verses 20 and 17. Notice what it says. Each person lead the life that the Lord had assigned or portioned to him and to which God had called him. It's in verse 20. Each of you should remain in the condition, and, and the word there for condition is actually calling, remain in the calling in which he had called. What Paul is doing here is saying, hey, have your mind around your conversion, around God's love for you, but God didn't make a mistake. When he called you to himself through the gospel, he also knew exactly what he was doing by calling slaves and calling Jews and calling Gentiles. And what I want you to do in your Jewishness and in your Gentileness and in your blackness and in your femininity and in your masculinity and in your socioeconomic strata, I want you in that place to honor the Lord. Honor him as one who does not work for men, but to the Lord. Honor him as a circumcised man and don't be unashamed and cave into the pressure. Honor him as an uncircumcised man and don't cave into the pressure. Honor him in the calling God has called you, not your neighbor. He orients us around that. And then the last thing it orients us around is that we are not alone. My favorite verse in this section is in verse 24. He says, so brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain. Notice the last words. With what? With God. You catch that? It's beautiful. What he's actually saying is you're not alone as you mop floors. You're not alone as you feel persecution. You're not alone that God is with you in that. And he's going to comfort you and keep you and uplift you and encourage you. Doesn't matter what they say. God is with you. You're not alone facing any of that alone. He is with you forever. When contentment comes, beloved, we make much of who we are in Jesus. We make much of who Jesus made us to be in our uniqueness and in our diversity. And we make much of the fact that no matter how hard the way comes, God is with us in it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the beautiful gift of contentment. Make us, Lord, a contented people satisfied with you, enamored by you, with you. Help us, Lord, to put to death covetousness and bitterness and rivalry. Help us, Lord, to marvel at what you've done for us in Jesus and the beautiful and intricate ways you've wired us to manifest your glory and to obey you and to keep your commandments here on this earth. Do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.